which would be page 631 in our church Bibles. Now, as many of you know, we've been working through Daniel verse by verse, and what we're going to do this morning is just read verse 9, and that will set us on our way. As your Bible is being opened, you'll notice that in chapter 7, it's a, a dream that Daniel was given by God of four beasts. And as you look through the opening verses, you see what the beasts represent and um, their activities, culminating in this little horn, this, this uh, one who speaks boastfully before the throne of God. And so now we're on verse 9, and we are on that second scene of Daniel's vision when we are at uh, the throne of God. Verse 9, Daniel chapter 7. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. Amen. We'll, we'll stop there. Let's pray together. Please. Gracious God, it's no surprise to you that we long for the day that we sung about. And we long for it for many reasons and for many ways, and we thank you that that is not an imaginary day, but it is a soon coming day. And so, Father, we thank you that as we look at your throne now, we know that your throne is filled with grace and filled with power. And we would ask that the Holy Spirit would help us now, uh, bringing every point of these verses this morning afresh in our mind. And whatever is something that we know, may we be renewed in its truth. And if there's something we have yet to see, uh, may we understand it as we commit ourselves afresh to live as Christ would live in obedience to our King, rejoicing In the truth, Father, always that we are saved and we are accepted by you only by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And it is for his sake that we ask these things. Please help me, Father. Amen. Well, as I said, we return to our studies in this apocalyptic section of Daniel, which begins in 7 and ends all the way to the end of the book. It seems helpful to remind ourselves that when God gave Daniel this two-part vision, first of the four beasts uh, out of the sea from the earth, and the second part of the vision, the Ancient of Days, which we just read about, the throne room of heaven, and the one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, when God gave uh, to Daniel that vision, it was not given, if you would, to intrigue us. It was not given for us to connect the dots, put dates on calendar and order that we can know exactly when things will happen and who will be doing what and what nation will be doing what in order that we then could uh, pick a path to the end. So uh, a church in Tennessee, I used to drive by often and their front church sign had King James only, hymnal only, pre-millennial only, right? P.S. Everyone welcome. Well, not really, right? Not really at all, because it's never good to build a church on secondary issues. So, the vision wasn't given to intrigue us. It wasn't given to us so we can set dates and take sides. However, this apocalyptic section in Daniel was written to remind us if we've forgotten or to inform those who have never known that God is on His throne 
and that no matter what, His throne is an eternal throne. He, God, therefore, is all power. He rules the world, and His kingdom is the only kingdom which will never be destroyed. So every earthly kingdom and king will have a start date and an end date, but not the kingdom of God. Kings and tyrants and despots and the lawless and the unruly, they will have a time, but their time will soon pass away. However, never the kingdom of God, which is the main and plain message of this chapter, if one is just able to stand far enough back from it. And this then becomes a line of thinking we have to go down if we're going to ever make any real sense of this and be able to make any real application of this chapter in our lives in any useful way. Because we've said that while some choose to ignore this chapter, we won't. Because what we're going to see in a moment is that the Bible doesn't. It's all over the Old Testament. I think I said this in the first service, I'll say it in the second. I've asked a lot of people, have you ever worked verse by verse uh, through Daniel chapter 7? And no one has said yes yet to me. So we're not going to ignore it because the Bible doesn't ignore it. At the same time, um, we're going to understand that some may try to not ignore this chapter, but, but hoodwink people by, by strange interpretations of this chapter and special insights or secret codes that they claim that they have uncovered, but we won't do that either. And here's why. We will guard ourselves in this as we follow the basic rules of biblical interpretation, right? You, whether you want to call it hermeneutics or exegesis, whatever it is, it's biblical interpre- interpretation and there are many rules, but here are two which are essential. We touched on this last time, but we're going to go a little bit better this time. One, allow the Scripture to interpret the Scripture to avoid any temptation to say on our own something like, for instance, in Daniel 7, oh yeah, the lion and the eagle, well, the lion represents Britain and the eagle represents America because that's their symbols, right? So, and they're friends, so they're joined together and that's what those things mean. And then the nations and, and the horns, and that means this and that means that. No, some of people have done that in the past. However, this is what we need to do. We need to ask them, how do you know? Where do you find that in the Bible? You don't. You can't. So you have to go outside the Bible to come up with your explanation, thereby giving the impression either intentionally or unintentionally that you have some secret knowledge the rest of God's people do not have access to. In other words, you're super-duper special and we can't check our Bibles to see if what you're saying is true. And I'm not trying to belabor this point, but it's very similar to the kind of thing that happens, say, when a natural disaster happens or a horrible event happens in, say, certain parts of America, and immediately someone will say, usually religious people, usually uh, preachers or religious leaders, they will say, the hurricane, that hurricane was God's judgment on New Orleans because it is such a wicked city. Or that superstorm was God's judgment on New Jersey because they're really doing bad stuff out there. And we're not doing bad stuff here. And how do you know? In the Old Testament, yeah, we understand that kind of thing happened as God spoke to the prophets at times to tell people why. But... New covenant. Jesus put it into that kind of thing, didn't he? When he said in Luke 13, people asked him, okay, there was a natural disaster that had taken place. 
And there was a terrible thing that Pilate did. And so people say, are these people who died in those events, are they worse sinners than others because they suffered like that? In other words, Jesus, is this the judgment of God specifically on them because of their sin? And what did Jesus say? He said, no, cloth ears. He didn't say cloth ears, but he said, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Translation, natural disaster, man-made horror or disaster is not a special punishment to only a select group of people, but it is a message to all people. Okay, what's the message? Life is not forever. Your death is coming in some way. It could be an accident. So because of this, repent. Repent before it's too late. Okay, our interpretation principle then, stay on the line that Jesus gives from his word so that everyone, everyone, and not the self-styled super elite, has access and understanding of God's truth. In other words, uh, don't be a Gnostic, right? Gnostics are around the first and second century. We've got special knowledge. No, don't be a Gnostic, but let scripture interpret scripture. And the reason why we want that to happen so that at the end of the day, the end of the sermon, we can say, you are sensible people. Search the scriptures to see if these things are true. One more example comes to mind. It's been coming to mind all week. In the recent elections, there was a, there was a person who, who is an evangelical leader, and he said that he, he believed that God intervened so that the, the president-elect would become president. He said God intervened. Now, here's the problem with that. You can't check your Bibles to see if that's true. But what would have been better to say is God's word says in Daniel chapter 2 and in Daniel chapter 4 that he rules the world and he puts people in power, specifically people in power. He's been doing it forever. And that way people can check their Bibles to see if what he's saying is true. Very important. Very important. Rule number one, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Second rule of interpreting the Bible. Every text must always be first understood in its historical, in its canonical context. In other words, in redemptive history. So the first question then we ask is, how would this vision in Daniel 7 be understood to the original readers? Namely, the people of God exiled in Babylon. That's historical. That's our first question. Second question would be, where does this Bible fall, or this chapter, excuse me, fall in the Bible in redemptive history? That's canonical. So, for example, if your Bible's open, this one like a son of man in verse 13, Daniel would not have been saying, Jesus? Jesus, is that you? No, he would not have been saying that because he's 600 years before the coming of Christ. However, as we'll see in a moment, Jesus will take chapter 7. And he will identify himself to the people in his earthly ministry as the one, verse 13, the one like the Son of Man. Which is why Martin Luther so wisely said, although we read the Bible forwards, we can only understand it backwards. In other words, we can read and understand the Old Testament only and always in light of the New You've got to get that, or the Old Testament will be confusing to you. Now, admittedly, there's a whole lot here in chapter 7, more so than 8 and 9. I've been, you know, feeling this for weeks. I've read this passage, and I've reread it. I've read it backwards. I've read it forwards. I'm sitting down reading it, 
sit, standing up, sitting down. See, that's how confused this has me, all right? And this is, this is one of those, oh my, passages, right? So if you've been reading this and you're feeling it, then, then welcome to my world. But once you get the main and plain message that, that God rules the world, and that his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. Once you get that, then we get what Nancy Guthrie said. We are in possession of the key to all of history. Isn't that a lovely quote? We are in possession here in Daniel 7 of the key to all of history. Now I want you to think of it in relationship to the Lord's Prayer. And I hope you all pray the Lord's Prayer on a regular basis. Okay, we say the line, your kingdom come. What do, we, what do we say when we say this? Well, first, we're acknowledging the fact that the kingdom of God has come in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we say the kingdom is coming through the advancing of the gospel in the world today as God builds his kingdom. And then we say one day the kingdom will come. It will come finally, visibly, and it will come universally when Jesus Christ returns. So having gone through the first eight verses last time and seeing that this final beast, uh, evil is growing and this little horn, verse eight, is speaking boastfully and it's growing in its defiance of God's established truth and it is hurting God's people, I suspect one of the questions people would ask, understanding that God is sovereign over the world, I think they would say something like this. This puzzles me. How can God authorize this kind of savageness, this ruthlessness by the beast. Because I, I promise you, this was puzzling for Israel. How could God allow us to fall into the power of Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, how? He's terrible. His kingdom is wretched. We're not as bad as them. What's happening? Habakkuk cried out the same thing. Chapter 1, verse 13. God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent, God, while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Isaiah, same kind of thing. Chapter 28, verse 21. The Lord does his work, his strange work, and performs his task, his alien task. In other words, God... This, this is not how we usually think when we say everything's going according to your plan, right? When we, typically now, when we say everything's going to your plan, it's like sunshine and lollipops and rainbows. That's a Leslie Gore song, right? And everything's beautiful and I'm beautiful and it's just beautiful, God. And of course, we do the same thing. Why, God? Why is it this way? Why is evil growing? Why is evil winning? I'm your child, God. We're, we're good because of Jesus. Why is this happening? So, it seems like all is lost. The springtime we had hoped for has not come. And it doesn't seem like anything is going to be able to stop, verse 8, this little horn. He's going to win. Until what? Verse 9. And as I looked... Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Which takes us to our first point. The first point is this the crowning is promise. 
So what we need to understand here in Daniel 7 is that this scene is a scene which is spoken of and referred to all over the Old Testament, which is another reason why we can't ignore this chapter. Crowning his promise. Let me just give you a few scriptures you can read for homework which describe this. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. I won't read all of them, but I'll read some of them. 49, 10 of Genesis. The scepter will not depart from Judah until he whom it belongs to shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. 2 Samuel seven sixteen. I will send one who will establish a kingdom and it will be forever and ever and ever. So even way back then, even in Genesis, the promise had been made that the Messiah would come and establish his eternal kingdom. Psalm 2 is a partial picture of this scene in Daniel 7. Psalm 45, Psalm 72, Psalm 110, which is, is probably the psalm that's quoted for quoted by most in any other psalm in the New Testament. And Jesus himself would use this psalm often, telling us that he is the Son of Man. Isaiah chapter 9, Christmas, a child is born, a son is given, and the government is on his shoulders, and what? And the increase of that government, there will be no end. Zechariah 9 as well. So the point is clear. What was foretold in words is now promised through a vision as God himself gives God's people through Daniel a a glimpse of the very crowning, verse 13, of Jesus Christ himself. And and this is the great thing about God, right? It's as if if everyone's getting a front row seat, right? How does that happen? Well, it's heaven. Those things happen. No back seats. Everyone can have a front row seat around the throne of God, and they are actually watching Jesus Christ be crowned. You see, that's the key to Daniel 7. That is what is main and plain. Why is that the case? Well, let's think. To give God's people stability in really unstable times. Very important, right? So people sit around and they fight about what nation is this animal, and what will this happen, and so on, and what's going to happen first, second, third. You want to say, holy cow! That's not the message. The message is, children of God, look at the throne. Keep your eyes on the throne. Yes, the beast is horrible. Yes, your exile is horrible. Yeah, you're suffering bad. But keep your eyes on the scene. Steady, right? Steady. Hands to the plow. Keep at the labor. Don't don't leave Yahweh. Don't leave Christ. Stable. Stable, no terror in the night. Don't lose hope. The king is going to be crowned and the king is going to return. That's number one. The crowning is promised all through the Bible. Second, the crowning is arranged. That's verse nine. The thrones are set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his place. Uh, Fascinating insight here. The verb used for the phrase thrones were set in place literally means they were thrown down or cast down. And so if we were to go to the Middle Eastern region even today and some very, very important person, say a king, a shah, a sheikh, or even an ayatollah, if they were to appear, you would find that his throne, his seat of power, literally would be cast down in this sense. They would throw down cushions and pillows in the place where he would sit as he arrived so that we would know that's royalty. 
And you see, that kind of thing happens now, and it happened in Daniel 7. Hence this vision in verse 9. This is akin to oriental custom for royalty. And so we see the court is set. Who is the one who will be crowned? Verse 13, the one like the Son of Man. And so the arrangement of the crowning is as follows. The Ancient of Days who takes his seat is a description of the living God. The fact that he is seated is to be understood he is in the position of authority. His clothing, verse 9b, if your Bible is open, and his hair are white, representing absolute purity. In other words, his judgments can be trusted. He's not swayed by any uh, uh, group of people. He is stable in his judgments. They can be trusted. So in contrast to the beast who, who are unholy, they un, they're unpure, they care only for themselves, they care only for their ways, they reject God's rule, they reject God's truth. In contrast to that, God is depicted as absolute purity. Just and true are His ways. He can be trusted. His fiery throne, as you see there, is an indication that in God's judgment, He is more than able to execute this judgment. So, for example, Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. God is like a refiner's fire. He will refine them like gold and silver because he can. There is Moses in the burning bush. There's the chariot of fire and 2 Kings 2 and Elijah. And what do you know? God's throne has wheels. Wheels ablaze. Hot wheels. Right? Hot wheels. And if you're looking at that... Very similar to what? To a wheeled chair. A wheelchair. Which made me want a Google wheelchair. And I Googled it. And this is what I found out. I found out that the earliest record of wheeled furniture was found in two inscriptions. One on a stone slate in China and another on a Greek a vase. And both date, guess when? Both date 5th century B.C. When was this vision? 6th century B.C. So, the vision came first. I mean, that's interesting, right? The vision comes first. And after this vision, of course, the word of God circulated. Guess what people are doing? They're making chairs with wheels on them. Pretty interesting. Verse 10a. A river of fire flowing in thousands upon thousands who serve him. Or NIV, attend him. What does that say? Well, it says this is an indication of the enormity of what is taking place. The, the host of heaven is massive. And so what we have here then in this courtroom scene is a picture of the purity, the authority, and the judgment of God, right? The purity of God's throne, the, the authority of God that he's able to execute the judgment of God as he sits there. And then we read verse 10b. 10,000 upon 10,000 who stood before him, the court was seated and the books were opened up. And so that tells Daniel and God's people, hey guys, you are not alone. I mean, wouldn't you feel alone if you were in that place? Thousands of people there and then, but no, there's 10,000 upon 10,000 who stand before the throne of God. You're not alone. One day all the opposition and rebellion of men and women and nations, that's going to fall. It's going to be done with before the throne of God as the books were opened up. In other words, this takes us to the end, doesn't it? Where you have in the book of Revelation, the books were opened up and the accounts will be and being settled. Right? So, 
Immediately when I was in my studies, when I was, a, I thought of a song that I, we sang at church as a kid. I bet you know this song. It, it's the old accounts were settled, old account was settled long ago, right? So it goes, there was a time on earth when in the book of heaven, an old account was standing for sins yet unforgiven. Now I lived in the South, so they're singing it with a twang, right? My, my name was at the top and many things below, but I went into the keeper and settled it long ago, long ago, down on my knees. I settled it all down on my knees. Yes, the old account was settled long ago. And the record's clear today. For he washed my sins away when the old account was settled long ago. Anybody remember that song? Just give me a little head shake or anything like that. Nobody Are you kidding me? Wow. Wow. Well, Google it. It's not horrible. Wow. The old account was settled long ago which is the message of the Bible, right? All accounts must be settled in time. If not, they will be settled in eternity. The payment being what? All of eternity. The justice of God demands this. The authority of God will execute this. So no matter how powerful evil may seem, this side of heaven, all of the evil, all of the injustice, some of which which me might have done, All sin not atoned for will be reckoned with when the books are open. And Daniel then sees in this vision of these beasts and the little horn who are oppressing God's truth, rebelling against his authority, harming God's people, seeming like it's never going to end, right? It's just going to be forever. But then the Ancient of Days shows this will end. God's sovereign judgment will see to it. Okay, that's second point. First point, the crowning is promised. Second, the scene of the court of heaven, the crowning is arranged. Third point, the little horn is defeated. And it won't take long, will it? Look at verse 11. 11. One verse. This is the destruction of the beast. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. That's it. One, One verse. Drop the mic. That's the end of that. Not much to it, right? Not much to it. One little word, as Luther says in his song, A Mighty Fortress Shall Fell Him, right? And Daniel goes on. The other beast had their authority given, but now it was taken, but were allowed to live for a period of time as opposed to verse 18, right? The kingdom of God being forever and ever and ever. Okay, so what's the point of that? Well, here's the point. The influence of these four kingdoms, they're still a part of our world today. I mean, whether it's history or law or world arrangements, there is influence. There are parts of these cultures still survived. I mean, our whole judicial system is essentially based on Roman jurisprudence. Aspect of our government, the same. And our attention is still, after all these years, is on Persia, Iran, and and Babylon, Iraq. We don't want to go too far into that, but the fact of the matter is, that's a reality. And so what Daniel is simply seeing is that God has set things in order so that when history comes to an end, God will execute his judgment and his justice and he will open up that book and the little horn is done, right? One verse and he's finished. Now just think about that. In fact, I think there might be a little bit of sarcasm in this little horn, right? So you have this little horn who just won't shut up, right? He keeps boasting and keeps harming. He just won't shut up. 
and one little boop from God. And it's done. It's done. Fourth, final vi vision or point, excuse me. Number four, the king is crowned. This is verse 13. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Okay, so just as the ancient of days serves to represent God, this one like a son of man, like a human being. In fact, I like that translation better and I'll tell you in a minute why because some translators translate like a human being. That serves to represent Jesus. Okay, how do we know this? Well, remember our rule number one of the biblical interpretation. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. So when we study our Bible and when we read the Gospels, we learn that Jesus' favorite designation of himself was this phrase from Daniel 7, the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus called himself the Son of Man a whole lot in his earthly ministry. Okay, then why, why then say like a Son of Man or like a human being? Well, I want you to listen carefully because this is, a, this is the explanation. The one who comes with the clouds is like a human being. In that, he is all which human beings made in God's image were meant to be at first. Right? What we were meant to be, but we failed to be in our sin. Now, we have to understand this. Jesus is all that human beings were meant to be, what they were made to be, but failed to be. So it's not that Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. It's, it's more than that. Jesus is the perfect human being, right? Okay, what is the perfect human being? Full obedience to God and a life of humility and service to all humanity. And that is what Jesus did when he walked the earth. And Jesus then is what God intended us to be when he created humanity. And you see, that's why Paul refers to Jesus in Romans 5 as what? The second Adam. Because the first Adam, who in the garden was given the right to hold authority and dominion right over the animals and the birds and the fish and the plant life, essentially or over all creation, Adam, dominion and authority by God is yours. Right? So God said to Adam, I'm giving you a fantastic place here. Everything's good. I want you to tend to it, care for it, enjoy it. You're under my authority, but this is your dominion. And what happened? Adam sins. He disobeys God. Therefore, in his sin, his dominion, his authority over all creation is what? Is lost. Because sin brings punishment. And so he falls short, Romans 3, of the glory of God. In other words, what Adam was made to embody, he no longer embodies. Now, if you think about that, since that time, man as man, you can read this all through the Bible, you can read this all through history, man as man, outside of Christ, has sought to recover the glory they have lost, and they do this, we do this, without dealing with our sin. And so we do it on a personal level, right? Self-improvement projects, self-help enterprises. We do good works. We do religious endeavors. We're trying to bring paradise back. We do it on a national level. Humanitarian enterprises, growing uh, governmental influence over our lives, and even governments saying, if we get together, we can make this place work. Therefore, we are sinful. 
right? We're turned in upon ourselves and we're trying to put ourselves back on the throne. We're trying to bring paradise back. We say, we can fix this. We can get things back in order. We'll get it right. We'll make heaven on earth. However, the Bible tells us that we are so deeply flawed we find ourselves unable to set things right because on our own, we can't deal with the one problem that the Bible says has to be dealt with, which is the problem of sin. Sin must be atoned for. Okay, so if you're tracking with me, then you say, okay, what are we going to do then? What do we need? Well, we need one who will come like a son of man, like a human being, Verse 13 and 14, 14, who becomes the servant of God. And he becomes the servant of man, which Adam was supposed to be, but failed to be. And this son of man is the reflection of the glory of God in his perfect obedience to God. And when that happens, then, therefore, the Bible says, he is highly exalted and he is given the name above every name, Philippians 2. And is given the nations, this is Psalm 2, as his inheritance. So the son comes to the father, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. Why? Because you are the perfect human being, Jesus. You are the perfect son. You are the darling of heaven. Now I want you to think with me. This means that God's view of history proper is not Adam and Eve in the garden. And it's certainly not your best life now if you get all your ducks in a row. No. God's view of history proper is this. Jesus Christ and the gospel. So, so if you think that, okay, God had a plan A in the garden. However, things went super bad, super quick. So he had to come up with a plan B. You need to start reading your Bible. Because when you read the Bible and hold to its truth, what you're going to see is that God purpose. From all eternity, which means before creation, God's purpose was to create for himself a people through the sufficient work of Christ on the cross, a people who are his very own, part of the kingdom, eager to do good, eager to serve the king and his kingdom. And in this son of man here is that victory. And that is what we have here then in the opening part of verse 13. We are actually seeing the coronation of the king of kings. Now, what direction is this all happening? So, so the son of man, is he going to the throne or is he coming from the throne? Well, if you don't look close enough, you might say, well, the son of man is, is coming from heaven at the end of the ages to earth. But I want you to look at your Bible. You look at your Bible, verse 13. He is coming to the Ancient of Days. He's not coming from the Ancient of Days. Well, what does that mean? Well, then this scene here is more than likely not describing the end of the ages. Not in verse 13 and 14, no. But something else. This is Jesus going to heaven after his death, after his resurrection, his ascension, and then finally here is his coronation, his crowning. To give him, again, verse 13, 14, authority, glory, sovereign power, so that all peoples and nations will worship and serve him. This is the crowning of the king. So this is happening now, right? This happens now in its developing form. But it's going to be brought to fulfillment when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Now I want you to follow my logic, okay? Okay. 
Here's the throne. At the ascension, Acts chapter 1, verse 9, Jesus is taken up in the clouds. Acts chapter 1, verse 9, verse uh, 13 and 14, he's taken up in the clouds and he goes back to the Ancient of Days. He goes back to the home office. He reports, Father, it is finished. I have done exactly what you said. I bore the punishment of sin. I've been raised to life, ascended to your throne. The mission is accomplished. Sin is defeated. Now, Father, Psalm 2, give to me the nations as my inheritance. Because that's what the Father says. Son, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. And Father, by the way, I'm making sure that the Holy Spirit will be poured out over my disciples that I've left behind to continue the kingdom expansion work. Right? Because what does Jesus say to his disciples before his ascension, before he's taken up to heaven in Matthew's gospel, chapter 28 and verse 18? We quoted a lot here. What did he say? He said, now... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's verse 14 here in Daniel 7. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, because I have all authority, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, do you understand that? So, according to Jesus Christ, since the Father has given them all authority over everything, The work of the gospel now is a rational and sensible deduction. How could it not be, right? The scene here reveals Christ has authority over all of us. He's crowned. And you see, this is why we we talk to people in Cohasset. We talk to nice people, but they don't know Jesus. Because if nice people go to heaven and they don't need Jesus then we should just leave him alone. But if Daniel chapter 7 is true, and Jesus has all authority, and in Matthew 28, he said, go, cross the street around the world, God be merciful to us if we do not go across the street, and if we do not go around the world, telling people on that day when the books are open, some will cry with joy, and some will cry with pain and anguish. Which one are you? Because this is reality. This is not fantasy. So in verse 14, verse 14 is some of the greatest news you've ever heard, or it's like no big deal, and it doesn't really affect me at all. And we don't really have a king. And what we're going to do then is we're going to reduce God to a God who's there for us and makes my life better. In some measure, is that not the American God right now? You're going to be there for me. I'm going through this. I need you to get me through it. I'm going through that. I need you to get me through it. I want paradise here. But what does Daniel see? Verse 14, he sees that this dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And this Son of Man, this Christ, this Jesus will reign is reigning forever and ever and ever. Now, is there any application? Here's one. In the moment when this little horn, verse 8, threatens to make itself God, and when it at least seems like God is in control, 
At that very moment, God acts. And what tried to subvert God's authority is now destroyed quickly by God's power. And so just as this little horn is mouthing off his arrogance, the court of God is calmly being set up and the Ancient of Days is calmly taking his seat. And I want you to notice the juxtaposition here. There's silence in heaven versus this little horn who will just not shut his mouth. Silence in heaven because heaven rules. And the little horn just will not be quiet. And the Son of Man is crowned and dominion is given. And his servants, now we know that he is the king and we labor. We labor no matter how evil evil becomes. We labor until our time on earth is done. Why? Because we have a king. We have a king. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And God, since this is true and since Jesus is king, please may we be given the grace, all of us here who genuinely, genuinely belong to you, in order that your spirit would strengthen us to prioritize and endure in the work of the gospel, sharing it with others, teaching it to ourselves as long as we live. And may an awareness of your wrath on sin grow in us so much that not only would we appreciate the gospel more completely and that we would grow in humility that you would do such a thing for us, that we would share the good news with others eagerly, compassionately, until the end. Ours are the return of Christ. And Father, as always, if any stand in need of Jesus Christ, may they come even now. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence with no fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, authority, and dominion through Jesus Christ, our Lord, forever and ever and ever. Amen.